Hello, my name is Ben Oden. I'm an author, capacity building and leadership development trainer. Each week, Mimi, pamoja na viongozi mbalimbali who will be featured on this podcast, will bring you leadership principles, stories and philosophies that if applied will elevate you into a position of more influence among those you lead and those who lead you. Greetings to you. I hope you are doing well and are having a good day. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Why Lead Others podcast. I am your host, Ben Oden. Uh, now, today we'll be exploring many facets of leadership, especially in this uh, world we live in today where things are rapidly changing, uh, where opportunities for leadership are essentially uh, borderless. You could be working in one region and then moving on to another region. You can be working in one sector and another sector. And so, the need for a leader to constantly transform, to constantly change, to constantly grow has never uh, been essentially more stronger uh, than it is today. And so to explore these ideas of change, these ideas of transformation, uh, personal transformation as a, essentially as a step towards uh, corporate transformation, uh, I am joined by a global leadership catalyst, uh, a potential transformer, uh, and an executive certified coach with over 20 years of experience across multiple sectors. She's a published author of the book, Rise, the Four-Way Manifesto for Life and Legacy, aka Becoming Your Next Best Self. Uh, she also hosts a podcast called Your Next Best Self as well. And I've listened to a few episodes from that podcast, and I highly recommend you guys to go check it out. Uh, her dream is to enable clients, teams, and organizations to become their next best selves by reducing their knowing, doing, and becoming gap. This is interesting. We'll dive into this in our conversation. Uh, she does all of this through her consulting company, Breakthrough Leadership Transformation, uh, which is based in Kenya, but serving people in Africa and beyond. Ladies and gentlemen, I present to you Dr. Patricia Murugami. Dr. Patricia Karibu. Thank you so much, Ben. I'm really delighted to be having this conversation. Now, in your book, Rise, you know, in the first, uh, I, think, I think it's the first chapter where you talk about this idea, second or first chapter, uh, you know, of essentially understanding and knowing who you are beyond your credentials. So who are you uh, stripped of your titles and roles uh, and your profession accomplishments and everything else? Who are you? That's a great question. Um, I am first and foremost a daughter of God. And it was stripped of every other title from being a daughter of my parents, a wife of my husband, mother of our children, godmother of many, friend of many, mentor, coach, everything else. Stripped of all that, I'm a daughter of God. And I'm a Kenyan, I'm an African woman, and a global citizen. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, now, this really struck to me, this um, passion, this dream of yours, right? Uh, of helping um, reduce the knowing, doing, and becoming gap. That really st stood out to me. Uh, and my question is essentially is, does your knowing need to be equal to your doing and becoming? You know, does it, do the three things have to be equal or does one come after the other? And do you need to essentially do everything you know and do you need to become everything you do? Uh, can you just uh, <laughs> explain to me a bit? <laughs> It almost sounds like a tongue twister, but you're absolutely right. This passion is because so many people actually come into sessions, listen to the podcast, like your podcast, and you're doing a great job, Ben. 
And they come into that podcast with the mentality of, let me see if I'll hear something new. I don't know about yeah. you, whether you ever had that sense. I mean, when I was younger and I would say um, less wise, I'll probably go into sessions and think, okay, so what am I going to learn that's new today? But yeah. what happened is over the years, I realized that it's not about how much you learn that is new. It is what you do with the knowledge that you get that really makes a difference. So people go into class and say, I've finished that module. I've finished that class. But actually, they haven't gained the knowledge because they haven't moved from knowing to doing. And that's, I think, the first place, which really has to do with being open enough to have a beginner's mindset. So mm. knowing means you are open to now taking what I'm going to learn. Even from this conversation, I'm open to learning something from you, learning something about myself. And hopefully when we get feedback from your audience, there's something I'm going to learn. That beginner's mindset is critical for someone to move from knowing to doing. But I also think that to move from knowing to doing, there must be a gap that you already feel and are aware of. Mm. So I won't go into class for uh, business uh, leadership if I haven't spent some time asking myself, what can I do to improve breakthrough? And I have this challenge and this one. So I'm already going into that session with the mm. sense that I need to fill that gap. So the knowledge I get, I need to do what? I need to quickly move it from knowing to doing. Now, the clincher is moving from doing to becoming. And that's mm. very much a question of habits. You know, the ability mm. to do things consistently, continuously, to the point that they become automatic. And again, mm. there it has to do with uh, your motivation to become your next best self but also the systems that you have in place to help you become more intentional about building those habits. Uh, there's something you've mentioned there, right? This beginner's mindset. And I think, how does someone who is highly accomplished retain that mindset? Because I think sometimes when you are, you know, um, adorned with all these accomplishments and achievements, there is this sense of, I know what I'm doing. And so that can you know, open the door for pride to come in. And then now, you know, your accomplishments and your success becomes uh, the reason for your downfall as well. So how, how does someone who is highly successful, someone who is uh, decorated with so many accomplishments, how do they retain this beginner's mindset? Another deep question. And I'll, I'll just share a little story. So a number of years ago, I was about to defend my doctorate. I mean, it took about, um, six years of which two of them I took uh, a break to have our second child. So in essence, it took about four years to get that doctorate done. And I remember when they call you, you defend four years work and a 60,000 words thesis in 15 minutes. Okay? 15 minutes, mm -hmm. all that work. So you really better know what you're saying. And one of the pieces of advice I got before that was practice presenting your thesis to your child, who by the way was at then two years old, yeah? And she mm. sat there with her dolls, and then my older child also, and, and she was asking me all these hard words, what is transformation and what is what? And actually the real mark of knowledge is being able to break it down that a child can understand it. So after mm. all that, you present to this global audience, it was virtual before the pandemic. So I was here just hoping the connectivity holds and we are able to have that conversation. And then they tell you, get off the call and come back in 15 minutes. And how you know whether you've passed or not is how they greet you when you get back 
onto the call. Mm. So 15 minutes later, my mom and my aunties are all saying rosaries wherever they are, praying <laughs> that this really works, you know, yeah. and my children are upstairs, my husband, they're all there just saying, man, she really needs to finish this thing and finish it well. And I get onto the call uh, with the faculty board and they say, the gentleman says, Dr. Morogami, congratulations. Mm. Yeah. And that's like, mm. I wish I could have recorded it, right? And, yeah. and I remember at that moment, I was like, wow, I've actually done it. Now, the clincher comes after that. So it was in the evening, it was time for dinner. So we finished off, I got out of the room, my family came down, my mom is calling, saying the rosaries have been answered, you know, kind of thing. And then it's time for dinner. And all of a sudden, I'm no longer a doctor. Yeah, I'm mom. Yeah. And I'm really <laughs> trying to feed my daughter, please eat this ugali, yeah. it's time to finish this food. So I think it's a real, it's a real awareness and it's based on who you surround yourself with and what your motivation for the work you're doing is. For me, it has been to solve a problem. And, and I know that I can only do so much every day. The problem of helping people see their potential, convert it into reality and help their possibilities become a reality is a never ending job. So that's the first thing, an awareness that the accolades and the achievements are not in themselves the real thing. It's the mm. ability to keep solving a problem. But I think the other thing is to remember that as much as I may be decorated on one side or a leader could be a great CEO on one side, he has a personal life and a space that he's also trying to cons consistently, continuously develop. And I think that the family front is one place where you really gain uh, to eat humble pie. Eh? really gain a reality check. And that's a space where it helps you keep asking yourself, you know, am I really doing it? Uh, and, and many times you don't feel like you're really acing it sometimes on the home front. But the fact that you constantly keep trying helps you keep grounded and, and, and actually helps you avoid what um, I like to call intellectual arrogance. And, you know, lastly is to, is to remember that when you're at the top of one mountain, you're really at the bottom of the next one. So that mm. awareness for me has been very real. And I think it's something that can help a lot of us as we continue to achieve and, you know, climb the next mountain. Yeah. And I think I like the idea of uh, looking and I guess climbing the next mountain because sometimes, yes, um, what, which is something, I think it's an article that I saw recently where, you know, it says some, one of the key skills for a leader in the 21st century is essentially not falling in love with, the tools for your current success, because you might have to give them up in your next uh, journey, adventure, uh, problem that you might need to solve. Because what the reasons for your successes right now may not be the reasons for what you you know you succeeding in the future. Because the world is constantly changing, circumstances are constantly changing. A good example is the pandemic. Is uh, businesses were forced to completely shift and transform, and your business included, um, and so. The idea that I like this idea of always approaching it necessarily as a this metaphor of a mountain. It's you know this is not the rest of my life. Uh, what I have been able to achieve right now is what I've been able to achieve right now. Uh, but the next uh, season of my life is going to look very differently, and I will need to approach it with a beginner's mindset because I just don't know um, how, what challenges I'll face, who I will be dealing with, because. If you're in the business of people, people are so complex, you know, um, I know we like to group people, but we're all different. And so just because you are able to lead a group of young people in this season, it doesn't mean the next group of young people will be exactly these ones, you know, so 
the continuous learning. I, I like that idea. Now, what three questions do you think leaders need to ask themselves to always grow instead of, you know, stagnate and just stay in the same place? Um, I know you've mentioned a few things uh, in, you know, your previous answer about it, but I think if you were to frame it into a question, what questions do you think um, leaders need to ask themselves so that they're always growing and they don't get too comfortable with their success? That's a great, um, great question. I think one of the questions to ask as a leader is who am I serving today? Leadership is service. Mm -hmm. Who am I serving today? Who am I serving? Because I'm not a leader and any leader is not placed there for their own sake, but to serve someone. So that's the first question I would ask. The second question is what energy am I bringing into any engagement with the people I'm serving? Mm -hmm. So is it energy that enables or is it energy that cripples? Is it energy mm -hmm. that catalyzes or is it energy that just puts a lead on people's ability to grow? So what energy? And there's a quote I read somewhere that your energy introduces you before you even say your name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what energy am I bringing to every interaction? And then the third question is, what is my purest intention? No, deep, deep, deep down. What is my pure mm -hmm. intention for leading the people I'm leading, for doing this business? Because mm -hmm. when we strip off, and I think... Um, you know, the, the Japanese have a lot of wisdom and the five whys where you question why you're doing what you're doing until you get to the core. And I write mm. about it in the book, Rise. Then your, your intention really drives the action, the attitude, mm. and ultimately the results. So those, those mm. would be the questions that would be fundamental. Out of those questions, then you get a sense of, okay, um, so if my energy is crippling, so what do I need to do? Do I need to mm. listen more? Do I need to get a coach? Do I need to, what do I need to do? If my intention is not as pure as I would like it to be, how can I rectify that intention? If I'm full of myself and I'm only thinking about leadership as me, myself, and I, you know that FM station, yeah. what is it for me? Then it's time for me to then start challenging myself to think about the fact that leadership is service. Nothing mm. more, nothing less. Yeah, leadership is service, nothing more, nothing less. Um, I mean, based on what you just said right now, it looks like to be a good leader, you need to have a lot of self-awareness because that's a lot of introspection. <laughs> I mean, uh, the five whys, right? Digging deep, you need to be, first of all, you need, I think you need to have a certain level of uh, self-confidence in terms of the ability to be okay with what you might discover when you look deep within yourself. Uh, because I think there are leaders who are afraid to look deep within because they're afraid of what they might find. And so you completely don't open those doors because you, you don't think you can handle what you'll find. So I think, yeah, definitely a certain sense of um, confidence in who you are, uh, but at the same time, self-awareness, which is something, I guess, now uh, in the training world, people are always training emotional intelligence and being self-aware and knowing um, and also cultivating. This is a conversation that I had with the CEO of ABSA here in Tanzania who said essentially that in his core leadership team, is always reminds them that, you know what, I'm all, I'm always learning and there are gaps that I might not be able to see in myself. So please point them out. It's okay. And I think sometimes leaders need to give people permission to, uh, especially in cultures where they're highly bureaucratic and people are afraid of saying, you know, if you criticize your leader, or if you point out something that's a shortcoming in some, in some organizations, people are afraid of the consequences. I might be passed up for a promotion. I might be transferred into <laughs> a different department. 
Um, but I think, yes, I like the idea of self-awareness. And the truth is not everyone is as highly self-aware as they ought to be. But I think a good place to start would be to uh, invite people you trust um, and giving them the permission to actually uh, share with you what are the gaps that they are observing in who you are and uh, and um, in your guess your knowing you're doing and your being uh, as you've put it now in leadership and business performance uh, results are demanded and um, especially in the corporate sector not so much I think in all sectors of course government um, the nonprofit uh, and you know the for-profit sector as well but I think it's really cutthroat in the for-profit sector. Uh, and many leaders think that, you know, perfection is the path to results. You know, they demand perfection. Yet you've said something that uh, in one of your podcasts, in fact, you've mentioned this, uh, that, I, that I found interesting. <laughs> I wanted to explore a bit of this. We say perfectionism is the highest form of abuse. Um, so how can leaders lead in like high-performing teams? How can they lead high-performing teams without demanding Perfection. How can you know in high pressure situations, high performing uh, demands? How can how can one achieve that without demanding perfection? You know, perfection is the highest form of self abuse. It is true. You know, I mm -hmm. I know I was a perfectionist many years ago, and and you see the difference between perfectionism and excellence is that when you're a perfectionist, you only want things to go your way meticulously according to plan. But we mm -hmm. know that um, that's just a dream, right? There are things that will work, but they may work in a very different way from how you planned them. So mm -hmm. how can you tell whether you're a perfectionist compared to being excellent? So perfectionists only want things to go their way. Perfectionists never welcome other people's ideas and insights. And in this day and age, the ability to innovate cannot happen if you're a perfectionist. Sadly, perfectionists really beat themselves down and they, they actually lack compassion for themselves and as a result for others because they only see the missing tile. You know the missing tile syndrome? White tiles and there's one black one, you can't even see the white ones. You only see the black one. So they only see mm. what is missing, what didn't work. And because of that, they actually um, suppress the human spirit starting with their own. So mm. just uh, looking at the difference between perfection and excellence, I want to encourage leaders to aim for excellence. And what does excellence mm. mean? Excellence means doing your very best right now. Yeah? Sometimes we think excellence is about everyone else and how far and how far they're doing, how far they've gone, how much they're doing. Do your very best now. Um, you know, excellence is actually the result of sincere effort, intelligent effort, the ability to have humility to recognize where things haven't worked but also the ability to bring whoever is around the table to be part and parcel of creating, co-creating that result. So you find that leaders who are excellent, and just the other day I was talking to a client and they were telling me how they have rewarded teams who have failed in terms of coming up with products that didn't work. And I mean, the teams themselves thought they were being called to be told we are suspending you for some months because that was an epic failure. But the leader was a leader of excellence who was so clear that let me reward this guy. They've done something that wasn't, hasn't been tried in this sector before. It didn't work out, but I want to reward them for their courage. Mm. You see? Courage to try. Actually, perfectionists do not entertain courage because they won't listen to people saying, this isn't working. Why don't we do it differently? And, you know, as a result of him rewarding his team, 
when they had failed, they came up with an even better solution that now has revolutionized their sector within the country and beyond. Now, if he mm. hadn't rewarded them because he had a spirit of excellence, there is no way they would have come up with this innovation and excelled in such a way that they're now winning awards and they've changed the landscape of that sector. So that's mm. the difference between the two. We are not in any way saying lower your standards. Absolutely mm. not. In fact, people who have excellence, an excellent spirit, really work on their will. They really work exceptionally. And they also recognize that other people need to be part and parcel of that contribution. Mm. So essentially, someone who is um, who pursues excellence, they are focused on effort, meaning what can I do with the means that I have? Uh, and then they live with the results. Whereas someone who is a perfectionist, and I guess maybe perfectionism, in a sense, is entangled with comparison because there is a standard that you believe is the you know ultimate standard. And then so you want to make sure that everything you do reaches that standard, even if it's way beyond your means and your ability at the current moment. I don't know, just uh, thinking out you're loud. You're absolutely but I, right. No, yeah. no, no, Ben, you're absolutely right. And that's why I believe in becoming your next best self, not your best self. I remember mm. one of my team members some years ago came and said, um, so the punchline is your best self. I said, no, no, it's not. And in my induction, mm. I remember telling that it's not your best self. It's your next, become your next best self. Each of those five words matter mm. because becoming means it's a journey. You are, you own your, your growth. Next means I'm better today. And I like your point around comparison. I think I talk about it in the book. Don't compare yourself with others. Compare yourself with who you were yesterday. Mm. That's the real metric. Because if today I can be more patient, I can exercise more will in terms of maybe one critical assignment that's very tough for me to do, then I'm probably better than I was yesterday. Yeah, and I think you see that in, which of course in business, uh, people who are operating with the old way of thinking find that very hard. But I think we see organizations like Apple who, in a sense, they're not competing with anyone. They are on the lane of their own. They are never rushed to produce anything because somebody else is producing something, you know. Um, their updates are always late uh, and yet they are leading in the market. So it's very interesting, this idea of always comparing yourself uh, to others. And I think I found this very useful because Sometimes when you compare yourself to other people and if you are less fortunate and you're in, in an environment where the people who are around you aren't as competent, it's very easy to get complacent because suddenly you're at the top and no one else is nowhere near you, right? But as soon as you're, so it's like this big fish, small pond, but as mm -hmm. soon as you're thrown into the ocean, you realize that, okay, so mm -hmm. I think, yeah, I like the idea of uh, comparing yourself to who you were yesterday. Now, the Japanese, which you've mentioned, I mean, there's plenty of philosophies from them. Um, there is this concept of wabi-sabi, which is essentially centered around the idea of embracing your imperfection rather than, so it's the complete opposite of perfectionism. They believe that, you know what, you, you can't be perfect. It's like this beautiful um, ball with a crack, right? It's, so it's idea of embracing your, perfection, your imperfection and there's a statement that captures some of the essence of this philosophy. It's that through acceptance, you find freedom. Through acceptance, you find freedom. And out of acceptance, you find growth. So it's this idea of accepting, um, you know, um, your imperfection. And in that acceptance, you find freedom. 
yet out of that acceptance you find growth so it's like it's almost saying that you can only grow after you've accepted that you're imperfect um and so how is this true do you think when it comes to leadership development as a practitioner in the field that is such a, a deep statement you've shared there and um in the rise masterclass which we're just starting off which is based on um, some lessons from the rise book I talk about the grief cycle and I think it was so opportune to talk about the grief cycle because over the last few years many people have lost many things people have lost loved ones they've lost sources of income they've lost mm. their health they've lost the freedom to travel to to do certain things so there was a collective humanity loss mm. and and you know when I looked at the the grief cycle um this two um scientists talked about the fact that you start with denial and then mm. you get angry and then you bargain and you bargain and you bargain and then you get angry again and some people just get stuck there but mm. they encourage us to look at acceptance getting to the accepting point because even for you and I who may be creatives in our own right for as long as we are angry or we haven't gotten to peaceful about the circumstances that maybe maybe struggling with you can't actually be creative so i mm-hmm. deeply appreciate and i actually agree with the idea of acceptance now mm-hmm. the idea of being um perfectly imperfect is really who we are as human beings and mm-hmm. um you know I'm, i'm a catholic and so i believe that perfection will be attained you know after you know in the next life but that means that every day yeah. yes that i should be i should be getting closer and closer to becoming that better version and so acceptance then gives way to the ability to look at their possibilities in fact anytime you feel powerless from what i've seen in my coaching practice and even my own personal experience anytime i feel powerless i also almost connected to that powerlessness is a sense of not accepting the situation mm. and you see when i when i then accept the situation then i start to see the options to grow to solve the problem or to find a new insight which really means that i have now accepted and then i have chosen to look at options which helps me grow and become powerful see because mm. powerlessness is a, is an inability to see your options so i actually mm. think that when the japanese say that um i find and having read some of the books of the japanese igai and this into soroi which is really that that pot which has been mended mm. with a gold uh, glue i think it's even more beautiful than when it hadn't broken and hadn't been mended so mm. i i feel that now two years into the pandemic we have had to really gain a lot of acceptance of ourselves and the fact that um you can work from anywhere that your family is part and parcel of the work that you do that education is not going to school i think there was a collective acceptance that we all were forced to get into which has mm. to do with us accepting that it's not exactly the perfection we are looking at but maybe actually this is what we needed to be to be more human more humane and to grow in the various mm. aspects we needed to grow in yeah and this concept of acceptance i like where you where you went with it um because i'm i'm, I'm thinking here why is it so hard to accept because i think i like the what you just did you used in the seven steps of of grief right it's um why is it so hard to accept is it because in a sense that we ha- we have this feeling of entitlement you know 
Um, because we live in a world that, of course, an effect. And if you do A, you will get B. And sometimes you, when you do A and then you don't get B, there's that sense of, you know, that anger, like you said, right? This anger is like, I, I deserve, I deserved a result B, but then how come I'm getting a C? I did all the right things and how am I, how, you know, so you're left essentially, yeah, you're, uh, left in this state of anger, um, or just denial in a sense. Or so do you think yeah. it's essentially this sense of entitlement that we have that, you know, if I do the right thing, I'll get the right result. Um, completely disregarding that sometimes you can do the right thing and get a result that is contrary to what you were expecting. Or do you think it's again, going back to that sense of pride where we, we find it hard to accept that, you know, our ideas, our methods, our strategies simply didn't work. They weren't good enough maybe. Oh, and, and that's a tough pill to swallow because you're, it's, it's come, you know, maybe so we've, we attach what we do to who we are. And so when we get, don't get the results we want, suddenly it's essentially a testament to our incompetence or, you know, our incompetent being for that matter. So do you think it's either or, or do you, what, what do you think it's so hard to accept? Because I see this very, uh, often, um, people find it hard and miss, many people miss out on like pivoting and change and transformation simply because they are still stuck at a certain place and they just can't accept the fact that the ball is rolling, the world is changing, things are moving and you just have to get with it. Um, and time waits for no, you know, person. So, so why do you think it's so hard to accept, especially when things go in a direction that you, mm. you know, you did not want and you did not expect and, you did all the right things and now there we are. Hmm? Yeah. I, I think the first thing is that it's a question of identity. Identity. Mm. So if, if a leader identifies themselves with only having succeeded, I, I'm reminded of a, a coaching um, situation I had where this leader told me, you know what? I mean, I've always had A's. I've always called A's. So I am. Failure is not part of my story. <laughs> wow. But actually, is the not reason part of the that story. They, <laughs> yeah. yeah, failure was not part. And in fact, I remember him telling me, I'm going to even block out any parts where I feel, look, anything like failure, you know? So I'm going to block those parts out of my history, which I think is tragic. But uh, I'll applaud him because he came for coaching, because he knew that that trajectory was not going to work. And part mm. of the work that we did uh, within the leadership circles and, and the coaching, the one-on-one leadership coaching, was to help him see that his identity should not be attached to performance. Mm. I think for many of us, if, if you listen to people who are in quarantine or who got COVID, many of them felt irrelevant. Many of them felt like they don't count because they're not able to do the work that gives their life mm. meaning, which then is very interconnected with their identity. So are mm. we really saying that when someone has a different ability, is unable to see, hear, speak, is autistic, is unwell, that they are not human? See, some mm. challenge in how people view identity. Because I believe that for as long as your heart is beating, you are worthy and you are valid. Mm? So the performance is going to be an outcome after that. And I know in the corporate circles, it's, it's a hard conversation to be, to be having. But the last two years have taught us to be more human. So that's the first thing. If my identity is intertwined with my high performance, 
then when something happens that I can't perform as highly, then I'm like, what is going on? Yeah. And then I cannot accept that because I'm like, this is not part of my scorecard. <laughs> so mm-hmm. People have personal scorecards where they, they can't expect anything less than an A star. So that's the first thing. The second thing has to do with the ego. And I think someone has written a great book, Ego is the Enemy. So we do mm-hmm. need the ego to a certain level to just be human and survive. But actually, when your ego becomes larger than life, then you have mm-hmm. a challenge with accepting things that are not going according to plan. And that then Mm. brings us to the last piece, which you brought up, of entitlement. And I think that a lot of big corporates who are high-performing corporates have struggled a lot from a cultural perspective, intellectual arrogance, with identity, and with a a culture of entitlement. And Mm. that is where they start to plateau in terms of performance. So mm. I think that the antidote is really to accept that you're human and um, rebrand failure as a lesson learned and choose to go through the, you know, the process of um, Kabla Ross where they talk about the shock, denial, anger, you know, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance and then try again. And I think that's mm. what also makes life very interesting. Don't you think? I, I do, definitely. Um, and I think for me, a big part of that uh, is my faith, my personal faith. Uh, is what helps me essentially separate uh, being from doing. I think that's really before that, before embracing the Christian faith, I struggled with that. You know, it was all connected. But I think after that, then there's a clear separation that, you know, doing and being are two different things. Um, I can fail uh, without that affecting who I am in a sense. Uh, And and so speaking of that, um, there is this, essence of, you know, a value-driven leadership. Uh, It's a leadership, you build your leadership on a set of values that you will stand on. And so we should say, you know, uh, researchers and thought leaders say that, you know, it essentially leads to a deep sense of purpose um, and commitment. And so in your personal journey, what values do you think uh, you have decided um, either for yourself or they are part of your belief system that have contributed to your success as a leader? Wow, that's like a thesis question, right? <laughs> okay. Or maybe you can give us um, two or three, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think which are the best ones to share. Okay, so um, I, I took the leap of faith to be an entrepreneur a couple of years ago. It's going to be almost mm. five years. And I'm reminded of what it is that drove me to do that because I left a great job where I was one level to dean at Strathmore Business School and with a lot of clout and all that that goes with it. Uh, but um, having come back from completing my doctorate, I felt that my life was a lot more than the title and that mm. too many people I came across were struggling to become their next best selves, were really stuck. So mm. from a values perspective, uh, one of the values that... Um, has driven me is, is that that value around um, helping the human spirit rise. Yeah. Mm. And, and that drives all the work that we've done. And, and maybe that, that may be called success because for me, even when I'm talking to my team, as I will be doing shortly after this, I ask them, so what problem are we solving? You're not going to sell rise masterclass. No, no, no. You're not going to sell executive coaching. You're not going to sell breakthrough leadership mastery circle or a corporate circle. No, 
you're going to solve a problem. So what's the problem the client has? And can we lift the human spirit through our solutions as breakthrough? And that changes mm-hmm. everything. In fact, anytime they go to sell instead of solve, they never hit the numbers. And then mm-hmm. I tell them, you know, when you, when you actually solve a problem, you have a client who becomes an ambassador. They don't even just stay at fun level because they are so transformed because you cared about the human spirit. So for me, being humane is a critical, critical value. One. The second value that um, is really important for me is, is the sense of um, that, that hard work really pays, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I know in a life of shortcuts and, and filters for photographs and all sorts of things in social media, uh, people believe that there's overnight success. No, I actually believe mm. that before you see what you think is an overnight success, there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in the background that make a leader who's really worthwhile and impactful. So that's the mm. second piece. A third piece is around inclusivity, that mm. no one should be left behind. And, and our work has very much been in that space. So we'll do board level work, but I don't want to leave the person in the board you know, there's a director, but there's the person within. So even in an individual space, I don't want mm. the person, the human being to be left behind. I think that makes a very big difference in how we connect. And mm. then lastly, um, values that have to do with forming your conscience. Like mm. when all is said and done, ethically, did I do the right thing? You know, can I sleep at night? Um, can I be proud to tell, to show my children that this is how we made this money? So there's nothing mm. corrupt in what we're doing and how we are earning the money that we earn. So that whole mm. piece around um, being ethical and I think really being accountable to a higher purpose, in this case, to God. Mm. So, yeah, those are the ones that, you know, come top of mind. Of course, I'm a deeply loyal person, um, you know, as an individual, very altruistic, which means I really, I will, I could do a lot of work even for free. My husband mm. always says, okay, so what, what are you charging here? I said, this one is pro bono. Like, okay, but you know, you don't need pro bono. And it's great to be aware that, you know, those are some of the weaknesses that we can struggle with. And then also mm. responsibility, also a very personal value of mine. That my word is my bond. That's why mm. I just said, you know what, January cannot end before we have this podcast conversation. And once yeah. I said it, I knew we had to make it work. Yeah. So this is a combination uh, of personal and, and, and our corporate values as breakthrough. Those are great. Uh, I think I'll have to, you know, yeah, I've picked a few of those. I'm like, okay, I need to incorporate those into my value (laughs) system. Now, true cultural transformation, this is just to piggyback on what you just said here, right? Uh, True and meaningful uh, transformations, you know, both personal and collective, have to start from a philosophical place, which is what you just said, right? The philosophical belief place. Um, Yet many, some leaders, not many maybe, some leaders believe that that's a personal thing, right? having this set of values that you're going to live by, things are going to drive you. It's, it's your personal thing. It's not necessarily a corporate thing. Uh, although, you know, they do have things that they put, you know, we have integrity and this and this, and excellence and all those things. Um, so how do you, knowing that to truly transform and change, because I'm just listening to you talking here, I can see, right, that these values truly drive uh, your life, because uh, just a good example is the example that you use of your husband, right? Where you you believe that no one should be left behind to a point where you're willing to do the work for free. So you've completely embraced, and they have, they are shaping your life as we speak. So how do how does a leader go from that having these beliefs that you believe that you know what collectively we need to embrace this philosophy so we can actually um, 
take and come from a place of from a deep place rather than just you know uh, you're given a responsibility and you just do it and there's no conviction there's no sense of purpose so how 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 can we develop a collective philosophy rather than just having everyone has their own individual thing going on because i think in the workplace sometimes you have christians you'd have muslims you'd have people who believe you know like hindus or people who come from their own traditional beliefs and you have atheists and everyone comes in and philosophically everyone is subscribing to different ideas but how do you say okay at breakthrough this is this is our shared philosophy this is what we believe how and how do you build that how do you transfer that how do you make sure that people own it um in the same way that you do or even better then you know you really you know put your finger on the pulse because a lot of leaders um remain at the level of just being managers where they're managing resources i mean they never ascend to becoming a leader and and yeah. i think that to ascend to becoming a leader from being a manager of even a multibillion budget which means you're still a manager of resources means that you've got to look at leadership in a very different perspective uh, you know some mm. of the work that we were doing and you know you you reminded me you've taken me down memory lane one of the very first sessions that we ever ran where you know they had us to help them develop the culture and, and you know strengthen the culture and my first session was about the team the leadership team um working on their you know discerning their personal vision and mm. they're like oh my goodness what is this you know i mm. mean for a lot of seasoned leaders they don't even have a personal strategy that's written down it's one of the things we'll be teaching in the rise masterclass because mm. what's the point of me saying i work for this company and our mission and vision is transforming lives across the world and i have no mission and vision for myself so how do i even connect with a corporate mission and mm. i remember they were visibly uncomfortable i i remember telling them put away your phones i'm going to ask you to reflect and they're like oh my god this is so hard mm. because people are also so busy and noise driven mm. but what happened at the end of that day is and it was a mixed group of both men and women by the time we got to the tail end of the day the men were even crying mm. and and for me i was like okay uh an intended reactions but i am so happy that we <laughs> be able to move the masks you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and i honor those men for being vulnerable because you know i remember a number of them came up to me after the session and said no one has ever helped us see ourselves as we really are before we see ourselves as managers and leaders and what mm. then changed within that leadership team is they started to see each other as human beings each with very personal aspirations they even were able to develop their personal vision boards you know because it was mm. a corporate retreat and we had come with all the material and when we did that because i told them today you have a license to be selfish you know mm. just think about yourself i know when you are at this level there are so many dependencies on you but when we got to the second day we were then able to now work on the corporate vision and mm. you see when people feel clarity of purpose which is my first manifesto raise your heart so that mm. you can see why you're even on this earth and what you want to do within the next 12 months then you mm. have the bandwidth emotionally spiritually mentally to then connect with the corporate vision board the corporate mm. mission the corporate strategy and actually in the event that there's no alignment then i i invite those who feel a lack of sense of alignment to find alignment or to exit themselves from a space where the alignment is not coming through because then what happens is you struggle with internal turmoil and conflict 
because you're constantly conflicted between your personal values, vision board, mission and statement and strategy and what the company is doing. So mm. it's really important for leaders to first even understand their own personal mission. But the second mm. thing is to then create a psychologically safe space. Mm. And that's the hard work. But it starts with first being psychologically safe within myself because I can't give what I don't have. Yeah. If I have, uh, I'm experiencing internal turmoil, there's no way my team will feel a sense of peace. There's no way. Even if I, I cover it up, it will still seep out. So if I can mm. create a psychologically safe space where I listen to myself, I hear myself, I recognize the good, the bad, and the ugly, which you alluded to earlier on, is not an easy space. You look at the mirror mm. and say, whoa, that wasn't a great show. And, mm. and, and forgive yourself, because I think that's a, is now we are finding Forgiveness has gotten a space in the corporate mm. circles, and I'm excited. You know what? Because I think it's <laughs> yeah. about time that people start carrying all this baggage and all this, yes. you know, pain that they've been carrying over the years. I remember I was once working in a place where I used to be told, "But they leave all that stress and your emotional things at the door as you come into work, and on your way mm. out, pick them." But there was mm. no way we could be creative in that space. There's no way we could be innovative. So create a psychologically safe space where people can come to work as who they are, good, bad, and ugly, and you can help them ascend and become their next best selves, which really is, is the call to action for a leader. Yeah, actually, interesting what you just said there, because there's a book called The Five Regrets of Dying. I don't know if you've read the book, uh, mm -hmm. Five Regrets of, Di of the Dying, uh, by a lady called uh, Bronnie Ware. And one of them is... Uh, and she was a nurse who was taking care of people who were dying in their old age. So, you know, mm -hmm. lots of people. And she took mm -hmm. account of the common regrets that people had. And one of them was that I didn't express myself. I, I, you know, I withheld feelings. And it's interesting that out of all the regrets that people have at the end of their lives, that's one of them. So, yeah, so yeah, definitely exciting times to see that now mm -hmm. we're breaking the walls and in the workspace, people will be given the space where they can express themselves, where they can allow to be and not just compartmentalize your life on so many rackets. And then, yeah, which leads to the mental health issues that we're experiencing today as well in the workplace as well. Uh, now, something else that you've mentioned, um, this retreat that you were doing with these uh, leaders, and it sounds like essentially they were like just going, just running and not necessarily not taking any stops to take into account what's going on. And this is something that a lot of leaders are suffering from, right? This thing called adrenaline addiction, um, where they just don't know, they don't know how to slow down. And some, for some people, in fact, slowing down is a sign of weakness. So we just have to run, you know, a hundred miles an hour. Um, but what do you think uh, in your experience, you know, coaching and training leaders, uh, what is the value of slowing down? Um, and how, how is that act of slowing down connected to essentially the elevation of your decision-making, your ability to, to create better vision, uh, your creativity and your ability to solve problems? Um, oh, I love that question. You know why? Because I love Formula One racing. And on my <laughs> vision board and bucket list is Abu Dhabi. Hmm? And so did, you, did you watch the last ones? <laughs> Not yet, because I've been so engulfed with the work that I'm doing, but I've been following yeah. Lewis Hamilton and his yeah. lessons and the, and the lessons that he's the learned over the years. He has a masterclass, so, I, I believe. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So uh -huh. when you think about Formula One racing, mm. you have to have a pit stop, right? 
Yes. And that's the challenge for a lot of leaders. One, they don't recognize the value of the pit stop. They don't have the right team that will help them. What I call your circle of accountability. That in yes. that moment you stop, they quickly help you change the wheels, refresh, do whatever it is and get back onto the road. Yeah? yeah. And a lot of people drive with E. You know, I'm reminded of a friend of mine saying, you know, I can see the fuel gauges at E and E does not mean enough. Yeah. It means empty. Mm. And as, as she was driving, she's like, I can't stop to fuel because I have to get to the next meeting. Lo and behold, the car stalled. So that's mm. the way a lot of leaders are racing through life saying, I can't stop to refuel. I can't stop to do the things I need to do because I am racing. But at the end mm. of the day, what are you racing towards? What are you racing away from? Yeah. And what is your intention in getting there? So I think it's a fallacy to think that mm. you can run without pausing. In fact, one of the things I intend to do later on today is, is to go to Karura and just have mm. a walk this afternoon and just, you know, in nature, because I find my mm. best ideas come when I'm swimming, when I'm in nature, mm. when I have stopped. And mm. sometimes the, the ability to stop is, is actually counterintuitive. Yeah? When you mm. tell um, you know, some of my clients, I usually tell my, my CEO clients that in your schedule, you must have thinking time. Thinking time. And they're like, hey, Patricia, you must be very wealthy to be having thinking time. I'm like, contrary to popular belief, I'm not even as wealthy as you. But I have a thinking yeah. day. Thinking yeah. day. But I have the luxury of being able to choose to do that because I'm an entrepreneur. But I'm also in the business of inspiring and helping people using the content that I develop to rise, right? And you see, yeah. the word inspire comes from lift the soul, breathe life yeah. into someone. So I can't be regurgitating what I spoke about last year, this year, unless I stop and pause, which is the, my second book, which I released last year, because as mm. you rise, you must pause. So I really like this question that intermittently, mm. if you are also a mountain climber, you know, you must stop, pause. Mm. And when you're getting to the top, you actually start that ascent at what, 2 a.m. So that at the mm. crack of dawn, you're right at the top which means you mm. must pause, but you also have to have a coachable spirit to listen mm. to people who you will give meddling rights to think, to observe and to guide you and wisely help you move away from any part that could actually detract you from where you should be going. Mm. Uh, actually, that's funny. The example that you used, uh, because when I watch formula one and just using the last, uh, the finals, right, um, where Max won. And I was not very happy with the victory, by the way, because <laughs> I was rooting for Hamilton. And Of course. <laughs> the whole time I was like, just don't stop. Don't stop, you know. The pizza, just, just go. You'll be fine. And I think that, in a sense, revealed this, again, the fallacy that I have in my head, right, where it's this idea of if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to go. I'm not, I'm not going to stop. And, and I believe that it's, it's something that uh, many leaders struggle with. Uh, and a good example of just use, you know, you're running on E, uh, but it's this idea that, you know what, I, there's a likelihood that I might perish, but I might also win. So it's this idea of the higher the risk, the higher the reward. So, you know, I'm going to sleep five hours a day and I'm going to work hard and I'm going to do everything. And in fact, this morning, no, last night, because uh, I was working late and then, uh, I had to do my exercise this morning and, and, and my wife was like, you know, I read an article that says that if you don't save enough hours, you, you die early. Um, 
And I was like, yeah, I read that as well. And she's like, no, I'm talking to you because you, you need to. And so this is something that I am also struggling with as well in terms of slowing down uh, and realizing that sometimes, you know, this strides and like a slow pace. Um, first, you, you know, you gain longevity in terms of like you can do what you're doing uh, for a very long time rather than just, you know, approaching it with the sprint mentality where, you know, you can do so much in a short time, but then after that, you're done. Uh, so, so yeah, definitely something that I need to incorporate in my own life, uh, as we speak now, this idea, continue with this same thought, right. In, in business, this killer mentality, you have to be almost like a predator. You know, it's uh, what we there. In fact, there are books that I've read, uh, on leadership where, and you read and you're like, Whoa, you know, and, uh, and in some sectors, I think sectors like the banking sector, you know, we're highly competitive and, um, the results, you know, are evaluated, you know, in very binary terms, it's winning and losing. There's no in between. Um, where, so, you know, you have to really be overly aggressive. Uh, you have to be, in fact, words like having a killer instinct, uh, words that are used in some sectors, right? Where, you know, you need to be a killer. You need to have killer instinct. Yet on the other side of this, we see people who are pushing for, um, emotional intelligence, you know, being vulnerable and slowing down and moral leadership and servant leadership, as a matter of fact, where it's not about you or it's not about winning at any cost. You know, it's about making sure that if you're going to win, uh, the means you've taken to, uh, to achieve your victory are things that you'll be proud of as well. Right? So these two worlds where one, you have to be a killer on the other one, you have to be emotionally intelligent. You have to care with, about the people. You have to be humane. Like you just said, It's something that I have been struggling with in terms of, is there a balance? And the question that I've been asking myself is, can you win big in business and still be a good person? Um, can you win big in business and still live a healthy life? Uh, is it possible? Or is this the pipe dream in a sense? <laughs> Million dollar question. <laughs> yes. My first, uh, my answer is yes, you can. It sounds paradoxical, but it's true. Mm. I'm going to quote from my book post and, um, uh, quote 66, which is really a reflection of my journal over last year. Your definition yeah. of success determines what price you're willing to pay to get it. Mm. Your definition, and it's a very personal definition. So I, I, you know, based on that quote, I have three questions for each quote. And one of the questions I asked is what price are you willing to pay for success? Mm. So killer instinct, Swim with the sharks, sabotage yes. their progress. <laughs> that's the lingo, yeah? That's the lingo with a lot of corporates, yeah? That they even call their team the shark attack, you know? And I'm like, okay, all right. But I think we need to go back to the question. And I think this all came from the, and we were all taught that businesses are there to, to do what? To maximize shareholders' interest, right? Mm, yeah. That is not true anymore. It's not only about this, the shareholder if the environment they're operating in, they're actually depleting it. If the customers can't actually even get, um, you know, noteworthy or even healthy service or products. If the employees themselves are earning under minimum wage, let alone living wage, which is what we should be talking about. Yeah? Mm. So first and foremost, I think we're brainwashed. But then again, leadership has been evolving. So everyone got into business thinking shareholders maximize shareholders return at any cost. Mm. Now, to undo that learning is where the hard work is, but it's worthwhile. Um, you know, now being an entrepreneur, advising a lot of businesses across the world, big corporates, Fortune 500, one of the things that I challenge them to think about is what is the reason 
for your business. And they're like, um, mm. to make the dollars, you know, the million dollar mark to become billionaires, to remain on the listings, to remain on the stock exchange. I'm like, and then what? And then like, and then we get big bonuses. And then what? And then we get another home. I'm like, and how many homes can you live in at one time? One. Mm. And then what? More cars. And then what? And then at the end of the day, they're like, um, you're not sure. And then what? So then the question that I then ask them is, what problem is your business solving? And I want to encourage any leader who's listening to this podcast, ask yourself, what problem did I create my business to solve many years ago, maybe recently? And what are the new problems that this pandemic in the last two years have brought to the surface that my business needs to solve? I have an old and very wise mentor who told me, Patricia, find the problem you need to solve and you never need to look for the money. It's true. Mm. Find the problem you need to solve. Solve it well with a spirit of excellence, you know, really taking care of the human spirit and your people mm. will line up to work with you. Now, what does that then mean? It means that I may actually get an adrenaline high because I really love my work. I think there's another mm. piece now around how do you then, um, you know, pace yourself, um, listen to people, ensure you're accountable. So that's where we need to remember that no matter how high you go, it's important to have a personal board of directors. And mm. we may be serving on boards, but I think having a personal board of directors, two, three, four, five people are the very most, who know you stripped of your titles, who mm. are not in awe of their awards and all their achievements and they look beyond all that and see you just as who you are, Ben. And they're like, Ben, mm. by the way, this thing is getting to your head. You need to stop. And you listen mm. to them, even if the ego is usually very loud. I think having those people, whether it's a good coach, you know, listening to your spouse when they tell you slow down, it is true, by the way. Lack of sleep can kill us. Yeah? And sometimes we are so excited with our work that you're just seeing time flying. But I find that being able to have checks and balances also in your personal life and, and challenging yourself to ask yourself, and, and this is really also to me, to ask myself, do my commitments match my convictions? Does my MPESA statement mm. speak to the values that I talked about before? Huh? Mm. Does my, my time diary speak to those values or am I saying one thing and living a very different thing? And can I then cost correct where my values and the way I'm spending my time, my energy, my money, my resources, and even my prayers, where are my prayers going? Mm. Is there a disconnect? And can I then find a way to reduce that disconnect and that gap by you know, allowing mm. myself to be guided by someone or some people every so often? I found that the most effective leaders who have been able to remain human and have kept their families together have also delivered exceptional results to all the stakeholders, not just shareholders, have a very deep mm. sense of humility, that they know that they're mm. here to serve, but they also recognize that they are fallible and they recognize that they can't do it alone. And, and that I think is a combination that would make a lot of sense for a lot of us. Wow. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, that was a very good answer. Now, as we yeah. are... Uh, you know, nearing a close for this podcast. Um, there's a question that I ask guests, uh, essentially, it's the one, 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 where essentially I'm asking, what is the one book you wish you read earlier in your career? Now, this um, 
means, you know, it, maybe even if that book wasn't published by then, so let's hypothetically assume all the books you've read were published by that point. Um, what is the one book you wish you had read earlier in your career? And then what is the one habit you wish you had developed sooner than you did? And what is the one value you won't compromise no matter the cost? I think in the, okay. in the, in the, in the, in the, in the Bible, there's a part where Jesus is, you know, performs miracles. People are excited. They follow him, uh, especially after the, you know, food multiplication and all of those things. And then he stops and he looks at them and he says, okay, you know, the general or king doesn't go to war without actually counting whether or not he can actually finish the war. Someone who wants to build a house, they, well, you know, they sit down and they take into account everything it would cost to actually build the house. And then he says these words count the cost. And it's uh, something that's been life transforming for me, this idea of counting the cost and real and understanding uh, areas where you will not compromise regardless of the cost uh, to you personally, to your business and everything else. And so I'm always curious to see what that looks like for different people. So what is the one book you wish you had read earlier in your career? What is the one habit you wish you had developed sooner and the one value you won't compromise no matter the cost? That is such a hard question. You know, I read 50 books a year. So I'm not <laughs> trying to think which is the book that really galvanized everything in me. Oh, and then I know now there's also the halo effect of the books I'm reading now, whether they are yeah. all that. The recency um, bias, right? Yeah. Yeah, recency bias, absolutely. Okay. I think an easier one would be, what is the one book you always recommend to people? I mean... Ah, oh, no, no, no. I recommend many books, <laughs> by the way, depending on where the person is. But on a serious note, um, the one book that I should have read a long time ago that you know, I'm, I'm still reading it and I almost can't put it down is The Gift by Edith Egger. Mm. The Gift. And um, she talks about 12 lessons to save your life. And mm. it's, it's fascinating, in fact, to have it here. And, oh, okay. and one of the, and, and um, it's very connected to um, another book because, you know, she's, uh, I mean, she went through the greatest of horrors with the Nazi camps, yeah? Mm. So, so for me, it's the way she's written this book that just mind-blowing for me, especially mm. because I think many people live in mental prisons, emotional prisons, prisons of their past, yeah? So Edith Egger, The Gift, 12 Lessons to Save Your Life. Um, excellent book. And the kind of book that you, know, you can carry through different phases of your life. Yeah, I can see you're looking it up. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> buying that one. Uh -huh. Okay, so that's, that's the first um, answer. The next one was what? Next question was um, what? On the next what is one, the one, one, one habit you wish you had developed mm. sooner? The one habit I wish I had developed sooner is to depersonalize feedback. I mean, I learned mm. that more when I got married. I've been married almost 20 years and my husband mm. would give me feedback and I'm like, mm -mm -mm. I don't want to talk to you, you know? <laughs> and he's like, what is it? I mean, this is not an attack. And I'm like, eh, eh, I feel like it's an attack. <laughs> so I, I think that uh, depersonalizing feedback has been one of the most amazing things a client will tell me, you know, I didn't like that. And I'm like, oh, that's a different angle. As opposed to, oh my mm. goodness, an attack on my being and my identity and my expertise. No, it's not. It's actually a different perspective. And I'm open to seeing whether I can work with that perspective or whether I'll just acknowledge it and say, okay, one person's opinion, that's fine. It's a gift that I've 
the project. So depersonalizing feedback, I think, is one of the things. I'd encourage a lot of people, young and old, because people catch feelings and carry them for so long. And I know that sometimes some things are very hurtful and you want to carry them for long, but they just tire and wither your spirit. Mm. And then the third thing, the thing I can never, never compromise is um, it's a combination of faith and family. Yeah. Mm. Um, um, it's so important for me that I start and end my day and that my faith, um, you know, guides me in the decisions I'm making. So for, for example, um, being Catholic, I believe that life begins at conception. And, and mm. interestingly, I'm constantly being um, asked to serve on boards that um, believe in something opposite. And mm. no matter how attractive that board is, I just can't serve on those boards because it's a total contradiction of who I am mm. and the value that I would like to lend to them on those boards, even global boards. So for me, um, you know, my faith and family are very important. And so what do I mean by that? So being married, um, there are no games about that. Yeah, I'm married, I'm married mm. for life. And, uh, and I'll put as much work into our marriage as I would into my career, if not more. And so I won't mm. entertain, even if this is a million dollar um, assignment, which could just make us, I don't know, own a home in the Bahamas or whatever it is mm. we want to do, or pay for our children if they happen to get to Harvard and can pay one mm. check. You know, those kind of lofty dreams people have. And so there's mm. this, this um, dilemma here of, um, should I then go on a date with the CEO by going on a date with him that I'll get that, that assignment? No, I will not go on a mm. date with him. It's not Morogami, so it's a no. And it's very clear in my head. But I think it's because of the faith part that I believe that mm. God is the one who opens and closes the doors that you pass through and that, you know, block any, any hindrances or block the past from coming through. So uh, those are things that are just uh, uncompromisable. Yeah, interesting how, I guess, you know, your values are sometimes can be very connected, good or bad, I think sometimes, it's uh, it, yes. which is which points to the fact that you know one has to be very careful what they decide to be you know the ethos of their life because that's going to affect how they show up in all aspects of life you're so right you're so right and i think who you associate yourself with which is the subject of my third book makes a very mm. big difference because what they're telling you feeding into your minds your heart your soul will really become who you become yeah whether you mm. subliminally understand it or not see it it really becomes who we are. So you're absolutely right. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, this has been great, great, great. Uh, a lot of wisdom has been shared. I will definitely have to go back and listen. Uh, and I've picked up a few things that I'm going to incorporate into my own life. Now, I'm if glad. people want to get in touch, they want to explore learning opportunities with uh, you personally, with a breakthrough, how, how do, where do they begin? What's the first step they have to take? That's a great question. Thank you so much for the opportunity to first and foremost have this conversation. I think when you have uplifting conversations, they not only speak to the people we are speaking to, they even speak to us. Even as I'm Definitely. talking to you, I'm yeah. thinking, I can't wait to listen to this podcast and hear what advice I was giving and whether I'm living <laughs> by that advice, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think it's important to constantly, you know, do those rechecks. So thank you for this opportunity. And, you know, this is the power of LinkedIn. I know you got in touch with me last year and you are persistent, you're like, can we do this? So thank you for that character attribute of not giving up. It makes a big difference. Now, when it comes to breakthrough, um, the power of the digital space, I think LinkedIn has been an incredible space 
This is how we got connected. And last year, we engaged a team of young techies called Creative Concilium, and they, they pushed me to really rethink how we are coming across digitally. And we launched mm. my um, new website, which is drpatriciamorogami.com. So that's how mm. to contact us. And if you get onto that site, you can reach us, whether you want coaching, whether you want to join our RISE Masterclass in Self-Leadership, because I truly believe if you can't lead yourself, you have absolutely no business leading anyone else. So this is a self-paced 12-week leadership circle where we have pre um, we have pre-recorded the videos, we have growth workbooks, and we have live virtual uh, group mm. coaching sessions with me on the areas that you will struggle when it comes to your ability to live by the four manifestos of leading by raising your heart with courage, um, leading mm. by raising your head with competence, um, you know, leading by lifting others as you rise with a spirit of abundance, and I think the most important one, leading for a higher purpose. So mm. that's the Rise Masterclass. And that's one of the ones that I know globally, a lot of people are signing up. People are signing up as couples, as leadership mm. teams, as chamas, friend groups, families. And so get in touch with us in any way that we can help you become your next best selves. We are here to serve. Yeah. And I think I would just like to repeat that. So if you want to go directly to uh, the Rise School, it's riseschool.academy. Um, Absolutely. But then you can also go to drpatriciamurugami.com. Uh, I think there's always a habit of putting a dot after doctor, but don't. Uh, just do drpatriciamurugami.com. And I think this is the one-stop shop. You know, you'll get everything uh, here and, and links to other resources as well. Absolutely. So to our dear listener, thank you so much for listening. This has been the Why Lead Others podcast, and I am your host, Ben Odin. This has been the Wildlead Others podcast brought to you by Wildlead Consultancy. Wildlead Consultancy is a capacity building firm that exists to build highly productive and innovative leaders. To reach us, go to www.wildleadothers.com.